All right. Well, thank you so much for letting me be here. And uh, we have miles to go before we sleep, so I'm, I'm just going to jump in. There's a lot for us to cover. Um, or at least miles to go before I sleep. You guys may sleep before I do. But uh, I think we do have some time for questions and answers later on. So if anything really comes to your, to your mind, uh, jot it down. Try to make a note of it and we'll try to address it as we go. You know, like he said, you know a little bit about me. Uh, Center Saved by Grace is really all you need to know. So we can go ahead and jump in. The people that we worked with when we were in Ecuador were called Highland Quechua people. The Quechua people are the same folks as the Quechua people. Uh, they are the remnants of the Inca Empire, which began in about 1430, more or less, from the shores of Lake Titicaca, the, the highest navigable lake in the world between um, Peru and Bolivia. But they expanded. Within a hundred years, they had conquered the entire western side of South America. And then what they had done basically was conquer all of these individual little indigenous groups. They were all kinds of different indigenous people. Like, for instance, if this was the United States, it would be stuff like the Navajos and the Choctaws and the Cherokees and the Seminoles and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All the little groups, but they were called Quechua or Quechua because that was just the language that the Inca chose to use to make everybody else learn. It wasn't the Inca's language. It was just the language that they chose. And it was the language that um, they imposed, kind of like the Romans used Greek as the lingua franca of its day. And so the folks that you see, the indigenous-looking people that are there, the people that are Peruvian, but they don't look like Ricky Ricardo or anybody like that, they're not mestizo-looking like folks, those are indigenous people. You might say Indian people, and a lot of people do, but most of them are offended by that. They say Indians live in India. We don't. We're indigenous. Indigenous is just a term that comes from biology that means they belong to the land. They're from there. They are natural to that place. Like, like potatoes are indigenous to the Andes. Okay, so that's, that's where they originally came from. They have about 400 different species of potatoes. We don't care about potatoes so much right now. What we're interested in is intercultural issues. What do we need to know to be effective among them? The reason um, that I think about them a lot is both of my dissertations had to do with these people and the Inca Empire. I've written a couple books in Spanish and a couple in English that have to do with these people. I think about them a lot. We ministered among them both in Ecuador and in Peru. Our church adopted an area like you guys did. Ours is outside of Cusco. So we go down from time to time. We've taken a number of teams down there to work with them. Um, primarily, I take teams to work in, in Ecuador. And in fact, this ministry right here, Reaching and Teaching, is a little ministry that I have where I take teams of people. We just go down and do short-term training events. That's kind of what we, what we do. But I have to do a little bit of orientation like this with all of my teams. So some of this, those of you that have been there a number of times, this will be kind of old hat. Some of this, uh, be patient because you remember your very first trip when you went and you didn't know what to expect. Uh, there may be some other people in this room. But just so I can have a, a pretty good feel for where we are, um, how many people in this room have been to Peru to work with this group at least once that's in here? Okay. How many of you have been multiple times? You're like mission trip junkies. Okay, good. Um, you're my kind of people. We can hang out. We can talk later. Intercultural issues. Let's think about what, in fact, um, I would like us to keep in mind as we start thinking about... Mine's, yours is working, mine's not. 
As we think about these um, various cultures, I want to throw up a word. I don't know, throw up. I want to throw up a word. And the word is relativism. Usually when we hear this term relativism, the hair stands up on the back of our necks and we think, oh no, here it goes. He's going to start marching off to the left. That's not what I mean. It's not theological relativism or biblical relativism as much as it is cultural relativism. Now there's a good kind and a bad kind. Just rapidly, quickly, the bad kind of cultural relativism is uh, during the days of the colonial expansion, the governments that took over various parts of the world usually had a state church. That church was supported by taxes. And so wherever they went, they would establish their church there. Um, wherever England went, India, Kenya, Nigeria, Guyana, wherever India went, or England went, they established the Anglican church. Wherever the Germans went, they established the Lutheran church. Missionaries were kind of like agents of the government. Wherever the Spanish went, they established the Catholic Church. And so throughout what is known as Latin America, we have uh, the Catholic Church. They took over the Philippines about the same time they took over Latin America, and so that is also Catholic. And that's why a lot of Filipinos have Spanish names and etc. When we think about those kinds of things, what we remember is at that time, they didn't care about cultures. They basically came in a country and started looking for the flush handle. They just wanted to get rid of everything that was there so they could plant their version of Christianity, their version of civilization. Even our heroes like David Livingston during his time in Africa, his watchword was commerce and Christianity because they used to believe you had to be a good citizen like people in London to even be a believer. So that's what they were trying to establish. Then there was a period of time when the pendulum swung, uh, started swinging back the other way to the degree that people became enamored with cultures. And, oh, wow, how cool. They have their own language, their own legends and origin myths. And let's talk to the old people and learn their languages. And, and we'll let them help us figure out what Christianity ought to look like here. Um, and they went way too far with that. They gave the culture too much freedom in deciding what Christianity should look like. Now, we need to care about cultures so that we can be the most effective communicators of the gospel possible. However, the gospel is over all cultures. The Bible is what we call supracultural. Cultures never inform the Bible. This is what the Bible can mean here. This is the way uh, church leadership looks like here. Or this is, what, this is how we interpret the, the death, burial, and Christ here. No, there is one meaning of Scripture. And it informs all cultures. However, when I go into another culture, I need to know how they think, their worldview, what they believe is real. Where do we come from? Where do we go when we die? Where does sickness come from? Cultures answer those questions differently, and I need to know what they're thinking, or we're going to use a lot of the same terms we're not going to communicate. You're a Hindu culture. Hindu cultures believe that there are four, well, there are three, four main castes, but they've been subdivided into 3,000 different castes. And you have to be born in one, live according to caste rules, you die, and then you're usually burned, and you reincarnate a little bit higher. If you've lived according to caste rules and you have good karma. If you zigged when you should have zagged somewhere along the way and you didn't keep all the rules, you got to start over, go down. I mean, even the animal kingdom's been divided, so a lot of them are vegetarians. They don't want to eat their grandmother or anything like that. So, so you know, they say, Hindu pundits say it may take 80 or 100,000 lifetimes before you eventually can stop that negative process of rebirth and join your soul to the world soul and be at rest. You don't know that. 
You're a brand new missionary. You just fell off the strawberry truck. Somebody said, here's a Bible. You're a missionary. Go mish. So you go in there and you go up to somebody. You say, hey, would you like to be born again? He says, done that. Lots of times I'm trying to stop. You say, no, would you like to have eternal life? He says, I got it. I'm trying to get rid of it. So you don't understand what he's saying. He doesn't understand what you're saying. We have to understand cultures. It matters that we understand cultures. That's cultural relativism. The good kind of cultural relativism is this. There are biblical relativists and there are biblical absolutists. A biblical relativist is somebody who says, you know, Sometimes the Bible knows the right thing. Sometimes it doesn't. The Bible's an old document written over 1,500 years by about 40 different human authors in at least three different languages. I mean, come on. The Bible doesn't understand anything about CAT scans and radar and stuff like that. That would be a relativist. A biblical absolutist says, no, the Bible is always right and always has the right answer. That sounds good so far. But then we've got on this side of the matrix over here, we've got cultural absolutists and cultural relativists. A cultural absolutist is somebody who says, our culture always knows the right answer. A cultural, uh, a cultural relativist would say, well, sometimes we know, other times we just don't. Well, we can look at this matrix and we can bring these two sides together, the axes together. What we have, for instance, if you've got a, somebody who does not always trust the Bible but they do always trust their culture, that winds up with situational ethics. What is right to do in a particular situation is, well, the Bible doesn't always know, but our culture can tell us what to do. That's where a lot of people are today, situational ethics, which we don't adhere to as believers. A biblical absolutist sounds good. The Bible's always right. But when you've got somebody who thinks the Bible's always right and they think their culture is also also always right, then you've got a traditionalist like, the Pharisees, they had a very high view of Scripture, but they had a very high view of themselves as well. And so they thought that only they could interpret the Scripture, very much like the Roman Catholic tradition that you'll encounter in Peru. For centuries, the Roman Catholic Church says that lay people don't even need to read the Bible. It will make you crazy. Just let us handle it. We'll tell you what the Bible should say, how you should interpret that. Then you've got people that are biblical relativists. They're not really sure about the Bible and they're also cultural relativists. The culture can't really always tell me what to do. So they are antinomians. They're a lot of themselves. There's nobody that can tell me what to do. I get to decide what's right and what's wrong. Well, obviously, hopefully, we would all be on the same page that none of those three so far are the right way. But cultural relativists and a biblical absolutist is where I think we could be safely following in the footsteps of Jesus as we go around to the various places around the world. What does that look like? Well, I believe the Bible is always right. I don't think the Bible contains God's Word. I think it is His Word. It is uh, inspired, inerrant, infallible. We can always trust what it says. However, some things the Bible doesn't speak to. They're what we call extra-biblical. Not that they're anti-biblical. But, and the, my first experience with this, I was five years old. I was playing down the street with a friend of mine named Greg. Uh, in those days, I was kind of a picky eater, kind of like my son wound up being. He got it from me. I would only eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches pretty much for lunch. That's what I had every day. And I was playing down the street with him, and his mom stuck her head out the door. She said, David, we're about to eat lunch. Would you like to eat with us? Now, I know now that was her way of saying, hit the trail, we're about to eat. But I didn't, you know, I didn't know any better. I was five years old, and I said, what are you having? And she said, we're having peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I said, well, I'm there. I eat that. That's good. So I go in there and to, I watched her making this thing. And to my horror, she put 
peanut butter on a piece of bread and jelly on a piece of bread. She put it together and she put it on my plate. I thought, what am I supposed to do with this? What is she doing here? But, you know, being a, a southern gentleman, I thought I'd give it the old college try and I thought, I'm going to try to eat this thing. See, in my mind, that's not how you build a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. My mom always put peanut butter in a bowl and jelly in a bowl. She mixed it up before she put it on the bread. So I wasn't really sure what this woman was doing to this thing. <laughs> but as I took a bite, I realized, you know, there's more than one way to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> And then the more I learned about the Bible, I realized God never really spoke to that issue. He, he, you know, it doesn't really matter which way you do it. Now, my mom's way was still better, right? But I realized you can do this other way. There's a Kikuyu proverb, which is from East Africa. It says, the man who's never traveled thinks his mom is the best cook, right? And we do. That's just ethnocentrism. We think our ethnic group, our ethnic culture is the way, it's the center of the universe. Everybody ought to be like us. And if you're not, we need to help you to want to be. Jesus said, go you therefore make good U.S. citizens of all people, right? So we go out and the ugly American Archie Bunker, he goes with us sometimes. And I'm just trying to help us to remember there's some things Jesus didn't speak to. These people over here, they live in houses made of brick. And they live in houses made of wood. And they live in houses made of bamboo. And they live in houses made of mud. Which one is the most godly culture? Well, I mean, they wear sandals made of leather. They wear shoes made out of rope, like our Quechua people. They wear shoes made of wood, like Dutch folks. And they don't wear shoes. Which culture is God most pleased with? Well, we still don't have enough information. Those things are extra-biblical. Red shirts, blue shirts, white shirts. Which one does God like the best? See, those kinds of things, and unless God has spoken specifically to an issue, just because it's our way of doing things doesn't mean it's the godly way of doing things. And so we have to think, if we're going to be good missionaries, when we go into these cultures, what is it that God has said clearly? That's what we need to make sure that they understand. And there's another sermon for another day about how we actually go about that in a culturally appropriate way that it's not offensive and it doesn't make you look like Marshall Dillon coming in there telling everybody how to live. I mean, you're letting the Bible speak for itself. But there are some things. Missionaries are change agents. We don't go just to embrace the culture and let it be like it is. No, there are some things that must change. Um, And then there are other things that... It's my preference, but God was not clearly speaking to this in the Bible. So I need to be careful about it as well. When we look at cultural perspectives, there's this guy named Eugene Knight. I just went to be with the Lord. He was old as a tree, um, 97 years old last year, I think. He finally died. Bless his heart. But he was a great guy, great missionary, great Bible translator. And he said, all good missionaries have always been good anthropologists. What did he mean by that? He meant that if you're going to be a good missionary, you need to understand how they live, how they operate, understand their language, their value system. Even though it may need to be changed, you at least need to understand why they do what they do before you start ordering their lives for them. Um, There is a perspective, we call it the emic perspective, or anthropologists call it that. It's a made-up word. It doesn't mean anything. They take it from linguistics, like phonemic It's a word that simply means the insider's position. That's all it means. We don't have that. When we get there, we have the etic position. That's the outsider's perspective. 
Uh, like the word phonetic, that's how something sounds like sounds to us. Phoneme is the smallest sound we can make with the English well, or with any language. A phoneme is a sound that we use. So emic is the insider's perspective. Etic is what I have as an outsider. When you show up as a missionary, that's what you have. So what you want to do is try to approximate their culture. Try to learn it as well as you can. You're never going to learn it 100%. How many of you in here know what Dinner on the Grounds is? Raise your hand if you know what Dinner on the Grounds is. Okay, about a third of us. How many of you know what um, Juneteenth is? Raise your hand. No Texans. How many of you know what a snipe hunt is? Raise your hand. (laughs) How many of you know the rules for kick the can? Okay. Those of you that didn't raise your hands, does that mean you're stupid? No, it means you're ignorant, right? (laughs) It means you're ignorant of some fact. Why don't you know that fact? Because you didn't grow up in a place where that was culturally a part of your growing up experience. You will never have the experience of growing up in the Quechua culture or in the Peruvian culture because you're already an adult. You missed out on all that. The favorite games to play as a little kid, uh, tricks you play on your teacher at school, whether or not you go to school, um, who the sports stars are, all the, you don't know that. You missed out on all that. So you will never be 100% in that culture. Jesus was the only 200% person. He was, is, will ever be 100% God, but He incarnated Himself became a man. He was born as a baby and grew up here, got splinters in his fingers in the carpentry shop. He got colds. He grew up just like everybody else. And so he was 100% man. We can't be. The best we could probably hope for is uh, to be 150% person, missionary, when we go to these other cultures. And that's if we really are intentional and proactive to do so. Because I've really got to learn, why do you do this? Have a cultural informant to help me understand why they're doing certain things. If I'm seeing them do something and I'm judging it from what that looks like to me, then again, it's going to be like asking a Hindu if he wants to be born again before before we clarify some terms. But in order to do that, in order to really learn that 75% of his culture, I will probably let go of about 25% of who I was. That's one of the hardest things for missionaries. When you go into another culture to realize, you know, to really embrace this new culture, I'm going to have to let go of some of my preferences. We grew up in um, the Deep South and good Christian family. Uh, my mom was organist. My dad was Sunday school teacher, uh, deacon, all that kind of stuff. We, were, we weren't just at church when the doors were open. We were that family that opened the doors. We were always there. That was us. I mean, that, I just grew up in that. My extended family was that way. And yet, I thought we were good Christian people. And then I go, we go to the mission field. We worked on the mission field with the Quechua people. They're called Quechua in Ecuador because in Ecuador they don't have the E eh sound in their, in their dialects. It's all the same people group, but they're various dialects throughout the Andes. In Ecuador we have eight dialects of Quechua, five of which are not mutually intelligible. A guy from Otavalo in the market standing next to a guy from Salasaca. They're both speaking Quechua, but they don't understand what each other's saying. Okay? Um, so we have eight dialects of Quechua, but none of them have the E eh or the O sound. They have those in Peru and Bolivia, so they call themselves Quechua there, but it's the same thing. 
Okay, but we're working with these Quechua people, and they're the lowest of the low. People look down on it until until I'm, I'm talking about hundreds of years, years ago. I mean, decades ago, till the late '60s, they were considered the animal that looks like man. They don't have souls. You can do whatever you want to with them. They even think that about themselves lots of time. When God puts somebody in your heart, you fall in love with the people. You want to give yourself yourself to them. You want to you want to serve them. You want to be brothers with them. You want to study the Bible. You, you know, you really want to be one with them. I'm driving through the community out in a place called Chibaleo. I saw this old guy pushing a plow, a, you know, old-timey plow behind a cow. Not even an ox. He has a cow. He's out there and he's trying to plow this field. And I thought, well, I'm going to go talk to this guy. I stopped my car and I walked up behind him. Well, he was, you know, about as deaf as a post, so he didn't hear me coming up. And I said, hello, how are you? And he turned around and it was like I was, you know, I was extraterrestrial. It just landed. And he... He just was freaking out and he dropped to his knees. I stuck out my hand to shake his hand and he threw his poncho over my hand and started kissing his poncho so he wouldn't dirty my hand with his lips. You know, and you're like, get up, come on, man, you know, let's be friends, right? It's not, that's, that's not how they see themselves. It's very, very difficult to get to that point. But after we worked with them for a while, they'd come to our house. They'd say, Brother, can you take me to Quito because they're, they're persecuting us again. The Catholics are burning our fields. They're, they locked by one of our churches and set the church on fire while the people were in there having service. They kidnapped one of our pastors and were holding him ransom, captive, kidnapped in the archbishop's house. Um, I mean, they threw a bucket of lit gasoline at me during one of the festivals one time. They tried to stone our car with these, this basketball-sized stone trying to throw it through the front of the car. And um, Mary and the kids were with me in the car. I mean, just those kinds of things happen. And bad things happen to our people. Nothing really bad happened to us. I mean, the nuns, not the men, but the nuns of the church dynamited one of our churches off the side of the mountain. Um, I mean, that kind of stuff was going on. And they'd come and they'd say, can you take us to Quito to get some protection? Because technically, there was freedom of religion. They could be Baptists if they wanted to. So we, w- I would do that. They really get in your heart. Then you come back home on stateside and you're sitting around Thanksgiving table with your family and you hear people using terms and telling jokes or what they think are jokes, whatever, and you realize they're making fun of another people group. And I probably did that. Now, I don't think my family members meant evil, wicked, hateful, McNasty kind of things about these people. And I never did before. But I realize now from the other side what that's like. And so you begin to let some things go that used to be your preference. I, use, I mean, I am a little bit obsessive, compulsive, anal retentive, buttoned down about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. A little, Mary says. <laughs> uh, including uh, even things like driving rules. But now I prefer their way of driving. I see absolutely no reason why you should stop at a red light if nobody's coming. And if, the, and if you're the only one waking the whole zip code, why can't you turn left on red? And they can. And I, think, I kind of appreciate that now. But when we first went, there were things that our kids wanted we couldn't get there, like Dr. Pepper, root beer, Nestle's Crunch Bars, creamy peanut butter that didn't taste like sheetrock paste, or um, <laughs> what else? Grape jelly. It was another thing they, they couldn't get that they liked. So people would bring that down to us. Now when I go down there, my kids ask me to bring stuff back here from there that they can't get here, right? Because you let go a little bit about who you are. This is our goal. This is what we want to be is really 150% missionaries. So I want to talk briefly about the missionary task and and touch on some issues that we need to be aware of. 
the goal as a Christian missionary, whether you're a short-term missionary, long-term missionary, is to be, say, and do the gospel. Um, I thought that said 5 o'clock when I first looked, and I thought, that's what a stroke feels like. It's just 4.30. So. Um, be, say, and do the gospel. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel always. When necessary, use words. Okay? We don't... Francis of Assisi is not one of our heroes. But that's true. We should always try to be what Jesus would be. Do what Jesus would do. Say the kind of things that Jesus would say. You know, we have the WWJD bracelets and all of that. And I know that's kind of cliche and, you know... But still, that's our goal, right? He's our model in all things. And so we don't want to go down there and be obnoxious. If all they know about Jesus is you and what comes out of your face... To the degree that you're a jerk, Jesus is a jerk. As harsh as that sounds. How, do, how are we supposed to treat our spouses as Christians? Watch that guy. The way he treats his wife, that, that's how you do it. That's all they know. The way you treat your children when they ask a question in the midst of a busy conversation that you really don't want to talk to them right now, they think that's okay to do to your kids. They don't realize that when you get in the car, you're going to apologize to your kid and say, look, Dad was just real busy. I'm sorry. They don't see that part. So we have to be very careful what they see, how we treat one another as team members on short-term kinds of teams. Um, um, On um, 1 Corinthians 9, 19, Paul gives us um, a hint that this is not just a good idea that sounds good at seminary if you take a cultural anthropology class with... um, David Sills, but rather, this was Paul's model. This is the kind of stuff that he would do. And he said, For though I am free from all, I have made it I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law. Though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law. Not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Now, Paul is saying that as much as I can change to adapt to their culture so that I can relate to them and they can relate to me, I want to do that. But he wasn't saying, so I'm going to start sleeping with prostitutes so I can win prostitutes. I'm going to become a drunk so I can win drunks. That's not what he's saying. Why do I say that? Because the very next verse he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So Paul Paul is saying, I'm not going to do anything that would bring reproach on Christ. If you're doing that, you've gone too far in your contextualization. So I'm not suggesting that we do anything remotely similar. I'm saying in all things allowable, we need to make adjustments. Like, if they only speak Mandarin, and I speak German, and I'm one of the best preachers you ever heard in German, and I go there and I preach a sermon in German to them, have I preached the gospel? No, it's gobbledygook. It doesn't make any sense to them. And there are... I will say thousands of other adjustments we need to be sensitive to along the way. In Ecuador, if I'm writing, teaching in the classroom, you're my seminary class, and I turn around to write on the board like this, when I turn back around, the temperature has dropped about 15 degrees in the room. Because you don't give people your back, even in that kind of way. Uh, they'll even say colloquially, boy, she gave him her back, didn't she? I mean, that, whew, that's strong. 
uh, when I would be preaching on uh, the crucifixion, I would say for the first time in the history of the universe, the Father gave the Son His back. And you hear people suck their breath in between their teeth. Did He just say that? And it dawns on them just what it meant for Jesus to take our sin on Him on the cross. If you get in a, a crowded elevator in Louisville, if you're going to the doctor, if you, you drive to Louisville, you go to the doctor, you get one of those big elevators in one of those big office buildings, medical office building, and the ding, the door opens, and there's a bunch of people in there. You just get in, you push your floor, you wait for your floor to get there, ding, you get out, you walk, right? Nobody's offended. That's just the way we do things. Ecuador. Push the button to go up to the fourth floor, ding, the door opens. There's a bunch of people already in there, but they're all standing in a circle looking at each other. But you don't want to give anybody your back. If you have to, I mean, they're not unreasonable. You just say, that's okay. they understand, right? You, but you acknowledge it. You don't treat them, because otherwise you're just treating them like animals or something. And that's offensive to them. Well, those are things you need to know, because otherwise you can unintentionally offend people, right? And that's okay. But in a lot of countries, this is the middle finger. So just doing that, um, this, I won't have victory. This is the middle finger in other countries, right? Richard Nixon, when he was vice president, Eisenhower just won, doing his victory lap around Latin America. You know, his traditional thing where he would do this, victory. And it would be like, imagine the president of Iran coming here, landing, getting off the plane in Washington, D.C., except he's giving us the middle finger with both hands, right? And all the photographers, click, 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 click. You know what the headlines would be tomorrow. Look what the president of Iran is saying to U.S. citizens, that kind of deal. And that's how they took it from Nixon. So we have to understand those kinds of issues. Time and event. Those of you that have been to other cultures besides us know that they always start late. And they say, no, we don't. And we say, of course you do. The sign outside, outside, the sign outside says you start at 10. We didn't actually start church till 10.40. That's late. They say, no, we started on time. So now they're not just late, they're pathological liars. All of them. You can't trust any of them, right? But what they mean is, you're measuring time by that machine on the wall. It's called a clock. We measure it by the event. When everybody that needs to be here gets here, we start. It's time. And when we've done everything we came to do, it's time to stop. So we started and we stopped on time. They just measure it differently. They, Africans will say of us, you guys have clocks, we have time. Because they're not driven, they're not slaves to that machine like we are. Um, and most our Quechua people in Ecuador, they just use the sun. In fact, you know how we have daylight savings time and we swap the clock around like that? They don't do that. In most other countries, they don't do that. Except one year in Ecuador, they thought, they thought they'd get a shot at it, give it a shot, you know, see how it works. Except when we sprang forward, they fell back. And so, it didn't so much work. It lasted for about six weeks. But what was really confusing is talking to our Quechua people who tell time by looking at the sun. So we'll have church tomorrow at 7. And the president at that time, his name was Sixto. And they'd say, is that Sixto's time or God's time? Because they never could keep up with which way... Uh, we were gonna, we were gonna go, and it, finally the whole country said, "Just forget about it." And they went back to doing it <laughs> like it was. But time and event um, is an adjustment we need to make. I've taken some former uh, military types on mission trips, and they are like wadded up like pretzels outside by the time <laughs> church, and they're angry. They're angry. They're positively angry at the people for wasting their time. They're showing us disrespect, and they're not. They're really not. That's just life, okay? In that culture, time and event, privacy and inclusion for us. We value our privacy. Uh, if, if Mary and I had a bag of apples here that we just bought 
wow, these are good apples. We'll buy some apples. We'll spend As you walk in, you probably would have just grabbed one. Everybody would be out there eating apples and they'd be gone. Because, what do you mean they're your apples? That doesn't make sense. I mean, they're a collective, group-oriented type culture. Um, when Mary and I would go to the movie, if this is the movie theater and our favorite place to, if this is the screen and our favorite place to sit is about here and there's nobody in there but us, of course, we went on time, right? There's nobody in there yet. So we're sitting out there in this empty theater and somebody else walks in and their favorite place to sit, let's say, is over here. But when they see us sitting back here, they will come sit right next to us. Because it would be like giving us an obscene gesture to go sit somewhere else. Of course you're going to go sit right next to somebody else. A friend of mine in Brazil, he said when he and his wife would go to the beach, they'd put out their towels, and there'd be five miles of pristine beach in each direction. And they'd hear a carload of Brazilians drive up. And here they'd come, you know, 87 children, and everybody, boom, put their towels right next to them. You know, and all of a sudden it's like spring break in, you know, in Florida. And you, you know, you're going to have this relaxing day. Forget about it. Doesn't happen. One time I went out to Guyana back in the jungle to teach some pastors for a couple of weeks and I needed some downtime for studying and, you know, eating my Snickers bars. I'd sneak in and that kind of thing. And as I'm walking back to, there's these huts back there. And there was, there were enough huts for each pastor that was there for the training to have his own, right? It was a Baptist camp in the jungle. So, you know, I said, which one is mine? And they said, yours will be that one over there. And I said, okay. Because there were only about 20 or 25 pastors there for this training. And as I'm walking back to my hut, they scream, but don't worry, brother, we've got six other guys that are going to stay in there with you. And bigger in Dallas, they did. We were all crammed in this little hut, you know, and because they, it would have been very rude for them to make me be by myself. They just Well, that is also uh, expanded, extrapolated into questions. Things that here would be very private. Right? There, not so much. I mean, they don't mind walking up to someone. I mean, it's polite conversation to walk up to you. So how much do you weigh? Uh, you know, so how much do you make? And you're standing there talking around with all these people in church, maybe people from your own church, whatever, and, they'll, and even more uh, kinds of personal questions. Husband and wife kinds of questions. They'll ask you just, you know, as in the course of a conversation, you're waiting for the Lord to come back or the floor to open up. Um, you know, how do I... But it doesn't bother... They don't think about it that way. Their filter, if they have a filter, doesn't work like ours. You know, it's just... Everything's included. And they don't have this... I mean, like, in, I'm at that camp in Guyana. The only place to bathe, and you had to bathe every day. It was super, super hot, 100 degrees in the shade, was down at the river, right? What does a white guy look like when he's naked taking a bath? Let's go see, you know? So, the whole community... Um, you know, and it was just like, hello. Uh, but that's, that's also the group individualism kind of thing. We're individualists, Marlboro man. I can do it myself. I don't need any help. Solo bootstrapper, you know. I mean, if my lawnmower breaks, I'll go buy another one. But if yours breaks, you're welcome to borrow mine. But I don't want to have to be owing to nobody. That's kind of how we are. A group-oriented culture, not so much. And they will find their safety, their security in the group. Now, the reason that is ma- that matters to us as short-term teams is because when we preach, we want an individual response to the message. Now, if if you, since Jesus is uh, working in your heart today, if you'd like to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, raise your hand, come forward, whatever we're asking them to do, they may come forward because they realize, oh, this is awkward. Nobody's responding, and I can tell he's disappointed. So some may come forward, but that's not how they would normally do that. Now, I'm not, I, I am understanding that God does save individuals. But they respond and, and uh, profess that 
in groups as your, as a rule. Like in our Quechua community, where when we were serving on the field, I would preach week after week after week, calling for commitment, calling for commitment, nothing. And I thought, yeah, I am. I've got to be the worst preacher there is. And then we'd pull up to church one day and they'd say, hey, uh, we have uh, eight ready for baptism. I thought, where are they coming from? And they're like popping out of holes in the ground. And he said, no, you know, when you would leave, they would talk to their family, the elders, friends, etc. They've been wrestling with this and now these brothers are ready to take the step. And so they would, com- they would communicate that as a group. They, that is how, that's how they think. That's how they work. Our churches... Mom and dad are sitting out there and little Johnny's running down the aisle. And they say, hey, look, little Johnny's making his profession of faith today. That's a good thing. That's a happy thing. But in a group-oriented society, that's a threat. You don't want to be the outstanding one, the individual, the, the one who is the... In fact, friends I know that have worked in those kinds of cultures, like working with school kids, say one of their biggest frustrations is field day. When you're having you know, the games outside at the school and you're having a race, let's say, pow, the gun goes off and they're running around the track. And when the one that's in the front gets close to the finish line, he slows down so they can all run across together. Because it would be embarrassing to win the race. Nobody wants to do that. And we teach our kids the exact opposite. And even our questions, the way that we share the gospel is the opposite. We want to see individuals respond. That's how our head works. But... Um, that's not how these cultures would normally respond. Task versus relationship. A lot of us make our lists. I'm a list maker. And, I mean, I feel great gratification checking off what I've done on my list at the end of the day. If I, if I do something that's not on my list, I write it down so I can check it off. And I feel, it makes me feel good. They're not so much like that. They would, if they have a thousand things they need to do, but they run into an old friend, that's one of the best things that could happen to them. You say, but you're not going to get anything done on your list today. They said, but I've run into an old friend. And they'll spend all day drinking coffee or whatever. To us, that looks irresponsible. To them, that's the way that life should be. It's relationships. It's friendships. And evangelism takes place best in the context of a personal relationship. Um, Not only that, but we tend to be very crisis-oriented. We're anticipating problems. Now, you do know the rainy season's coming and you haven't put the roof on this building yet. You understand? That's a problem. Yeah, but it may not rain this year. It's going to rain. It, rain. it rains every year. Get the roof on the building. But we, we were just go, you know we were going to finish the soccer game first. It's going to you know you get it. They don't. They don't understand the crisis. Um, part of it has to do with their view of time. In the Quechua, Quechua mindset, for instance, you know that that uh, movie. I don't know if it's Pixar, or whatever it is. Meet the Robinsons, where it says, "Keep moving forward." If you say that to a Quechua person, if you say, just talking about worldviews and how we see things differently, if you say to a Quechua person, keep moving forward, what they're going to do is they're thinking you're talking about keep going into the past. Because to them, the past is what's in front of you. That's weird. The future is behind you. Why do they say that? Because I can see what's behind me. I can see what's already happened, but I don't know what's in the future. So you kind of go into the future like this. And so why would I plan for something that may never happen? You've got health insurance, life insurance, retirement plan, warranties on your cars, extra warranties on your appliances. You've got disability insurance. You've tried to anticipate every possible issue that could happen and i got a policy for it. Make sure it's paid up. You know, you're, that's, They don't have anything. And you look at them and say, man, you're like irresponsible. And he looks at you and says, you like don't trust God. Doesn't he say he'll take care of you? Why are you doing all that? You're spending 
half your discretionary income to take care of stuff that may never happen. That God said, even if it does, I'll take care of you. So it depends on what side of the fence you happen to be standing on. For them, they're very group-oriented, very relational, um, very uh, indirect in their communication. This is one that really matters. Um, indirect in the communication means every culture on the planet uses language for two reasons. One is to communicate uh, truth, to communicate facts, information. Secondly, to maintain warm, fuzzy, good relationships. We use language in that order. Uh, can you tell me where the Bolivar Hotel is? Yes, it is two blocks that way and turn right. Or, no, I'm sorry, I don't know where it is. Or, I don't think there is a hotel here by that name. One of those three answers would be good and none of them would offend us. We would want to know the answer to the question because we've got screaming kids in the back. We've gotten here in town late. We need to know where it is. We need to know the answer. Just answer the question. They will say, Ah, two blocks up, turn right. You'll see it down there on your left. You know, welcome to town, whatever. And you go, there's no hotel. <laughs> so you find somebody and say, Excuse me, uh, could you tell me where is the Hotel Bolivar? Ah, man, you're, okay, you're all messed up. It's on the other side of the plaza behind the post office. You'll see it back there. Big building, Hotel Bolivar. Ah, great, thank you so much. You go over, there's no hotel. <laughs> so you ask a cop, uh, Hotel Bolivar, can you tell me where that is? There's not a hotel by that name in this town. What were the first two people doing? They were telling you what they thought you wanted to hear because they didn't want to hurt your feelings. <laughs> and they wanted, you know, we're driving down the road, can we down the highway, and we've been going on for like about a year, so we see somebody, we say, excuse me, can you tell me, how far to Riobamba? Oh, ya mismo, yeah, you know, it's just right over the hill. You're right here. Six hours later, we'll stop and ask somebody else where it is. And they'll say the exact same thing, right? That's just, they want to make sure you feel good. So they will rarely say no to anything. A friend of mine worked in Uganda for a long time, said the closest he got to a no was, eh, it would be really difficult. That means no. That's a hard no. You'll ask them, can you come to our meeting Saturday at 2 o'clock? Yes, Where, where's it going to be? So it's about, great, sure, can I bring something? Alright, I'll be there. Thank you so much. For, they know the whole time they're going to be out of town Saturday. <laughs> so, again, they're just pathological liars, right? You're mad about that. This guy just, he tricked me, lied to me. You can't trust him for anything. And so you're, you don't feel well anyway. And you're marching back to your hotel room and you pass somebody in the hallway and they say, hey man, how you doing? And you say, fine. And you go back to your hotel room and repent of that. No, because that's the culturally expected answer to the question, how are you doing? They don't want to know how your gallbladder is or anything like that. They just want to know, hey man, how are you doing? You say, fine. Or you smile and nod and say, good, how about you? That kind of thing. That's how we do. Um, now, we'll fudge on those rules a little bit. Like uh, if a good friend says, do these jeans make me look fat? Yes is never the right answer, okay? I mean, so you're probably gonna, like that Abraham Lincoln commercial that's on TV, where he's, you know, it's like that. You may, uh, but most of us aren't even that honest. That's why he's honest, Dave. Uh, but here's where it plays out to real life for missionaries. We're going, every single one of our tracks, virtually, come to the end where they'll say, now, does what I've been saying make sense to you? There's two answers to that. If they say no, that means I'm too stupid to understand what you're saying. Nobody wants to say that. Or they could say no, that means you're not a very good teacher. And they don't want to say that. 
So they'll say, yes, it does. Say, don't you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior today? Yes, I do. And so, pray this prayer with me and they'll pray it. And we check off another one. We'll send down a team of 20 BSU students to work in, the, in a park in Buenos Aires where we've got four or five missionary families that have been working faithfully for 25 years. Working hard. Knowing the culture, knowing the language, knowing the relationships. And they may have seen 30 solid professions of faith in all those years where people have come to know the Lord, their lives have changed, they've stayed faithful, they've been discipled, they're winning other people to the Lord, but maybe 30. And this team of 20 BSU students that go down there for a week doing miming and puppets and giving out tracts and singing and sharing their testimony in the park will come back and put in the state paper they had 660 professions of faith last week. Now, it's not that they're telling a story, you know, adding everybody up and adding 10% in case somebody's in the bathroom. I mean, they, what, they, what they're reporting are people who nodded usually because either they want to get away from you and that's the only way they know how or you're from North America with a dark blue passport. You can go to the land of Walmart anytime you want to. You're a very powerful person and I'd like to have a friend in the U.S. and so I want to tell you things that will make us feel good about each other. We have to be careful, very careful with that. With an indirect communication culture, yes, no questions are rarely effective. Always give them one out. And as a friend of mine who just, he just come back, he's just come back from two years in Iquitos, which is the far northeast corner of the jungle of Brazil, of uh, Peru, where Peru and Brazil come together. He said, there, their rule of thumb is always interpret hesitation as no. Hey, can you, uh, that means no. They'll say yes eventually, but uh, that means no. Maybe they'll change the subject. That's a definite no. Can you loan me $5? Do you think it's going to rain? Uh, you know, forget about it. <laughs> this one, when uh, Adam and Eve fell, three things came into the world. Shame and guilt and fear. And all cultures have all of those. But they tend to exist in these parallel dyad type relationships. Shame and honor go together. Muslim cultures have that a lot. Asian cultures have that a lot. In fact, in Muslim, Muslim cultures, if somebody brings a shame because my daughter fell in love with the wrong kind of Muslim or my son converted to Christianity or whatever, you'll hear about honor killings. We hear about those even more in the U.S., Canada, England. Uh, because the only way to get rid of the shame is to erase it. That's the only way for the family, the community, to get their honor back. Asians live in constant fear of bringing shame on their family, making their family lose face. It's a horrible word. We translate it as sin. But you're preaching in an Asian culture, you can say, we're all sinners, right? They'll say, no. Because you're using the word that they would use for losing And they spend all their lives avoiding losing face. In our culture, we have this guilt-innocence kind of thing. And this person is either guilty... Or they're innocent. But in the animistic cultures, like the Quechua's of Peru and this side of the other, they're very, very animistic. They believe in spirits, powers, ancestors, magic, the shaman. Um, you're, you hear a sudden noise that scares you. They call that espanto. They have to go see the curandero, the shaman, and take a black guinea pig or eggs. Um, um, it's a ritual that the shaman will do. And he will... Get your soul back. Otherwise, you get weak, you get sick, you get fever, you get diarrhea, you lose your will to live, you get weak and die. So if lightning strikes and a kid cries, the mom will take that kid to the shaman. Even kids in your church, I mean even parents in your church will do that because that's part of the culture. That's not religion. They don't think of that as religion. That's part of the culture. That's what they do. 
So this fear and power is how those people live their lives. Yes, they have guilt and innocence. Yes, they have shame and honor. But the people that you'll work with there, their lives are governed by this fear. And whoever has power is a respected person and they don't want to publicly go against that person. And that person may be the priest. Even though he's a rented priest from another town that they paid to come in to do a wedding or a funeral or something like that because they don't have their own priest. Whatever he says goes. And they may say, anybody goes to these people's services, you're excommunicated. Your family can never be buried in the cemetery. No one will ever be married. I won't say a mass for any of your dead relatives. Anything like that. Terrifying stuff. And so at night they may slip around and come to your services. But during the daytime, you won't find them being a part of what you do. And you wonder, what's going on here? That guy over there, didn't he accept Christ last time we were here? How come he's not coming over here to our meeting? Uh, They're very fearful of those who have great power. Now the thing I want to really spend some time on in the last couple hours we have is... um, No, seriously, this issue of the patron-client complex, I have other things beyond this that I want to talk about, but I want to definitely cover this one. Because this is one that missionaries spend years on the field and never quite get. And when they do learn it, uh, I can tell you from personal experience, they're... Um, there are tears often. There's great shame, embarrassment, um, regret for the way they spent their life because they never saw it. And it's not uh, really their fault. Sometimes, it, I mean, some of these things would be our fault to a certain degree. Some missionaries have 40 years of experience and some missionaries have one year of experience 40 times, right? Like anything else. But what happens is, let's just paint it this way. I'm a new missionary. I just got here. I'm working in your community. And uh, this brother hangs around after the service, and he helps me straighten up the chairs, pick up the you know the bulletins, anything like that. I come and he lives fairly close to where I'm going to be living. I come home, and he's out there fixing up my yard, working in the flower bed stuff like that. Said he just saw some things that are out of order. He's trying to fix them up for me. I think what a guy. Thanks very much. Say hey, look, we're going to have a special evangelism training on Saturday. If you can invite other people to come, he's going to beat the bushes and get people to come in and be there. And he's going to be the first one there and he's going to be smiling, his hair is going to be combed and he's going to be ready to go. Uh, my wife and I, we go off to the market the next day. We come home, he's washing the vehicle that we left there behind. Or he watches our house or our dogs for us while we're out of town. Things like that. And he begins to ingratiate himself to us. We think, he's really a good guy. Meanwhile, the wife says, uh, careful, I think he's setting us up. I think he's just trying to butter us up to ask for money. And this relationship kind of begins, and every time you come in town, he's there. And he's your friend. And then one day he says, hey, look, um, I'm about to put in my crop. I've got to you know, plant my seed and all. I need to borrow about $150 to buy my seed to put in. And you're like, well, you know, that's not what we do. I'm sorry, we don't have that kind of money. I mean, we're we're poor. Let me, let me, you know, you've been so much help, and we appreciate everything. So let me let me pray about it. Let me talk to my wife, and and I'll let you know tomorrow. So we pray about it. We talk about it. We think, okay, you've been a great guy. Really helped us out. We're, we're going to do this. Oh, thank you so much. So we do it. He goes and gets it, plants his crop. Matter of weeks, he comes back and he says, now look, I need to put out some fertilizer or some insecticide, whatever he needs to put out next. And he needs to borrow some more money. And I'm like, well, how much? Well, I, I probably about another 150. Man, look, 
Uh, like I said, we don't do that. We so, uh, Let me just talk to my wife about it. Let us pray about this. This is really amazing because I thought I told you we don't do that, right? So I talked to her, come back the next day and say, no, I'm sorry. You know, we'd like to help you. But this is getting ridiculous. How much do you think total it's going to take? And it's like a new thought to him. For the very first time, he thinks, well, I guess the whole process is about $500. So, I mean, I'm, I'll pay you back as soon as the crop comes in and I sell it. I mean, I'm going to give you the money back. Yeah, man, but you know that is not what we do. We're we're missionaries. We preach. We teach. That's what we're here to do. And then he doesn't come back anymore. And your wife says, "See, he just sees us as walking ATMs. He's just out for our money, and he's trying to take advantage of us." And um, I was right all along. And that happens again. And it happens again. And it happens again. Push the pause button. Flash back to history. When the Inca came in in the 1430s, they conquered all these smaller tribes. All these smaller tribes had their own chiefs, their mayors, their, their leaders of whatever. They kept those people in an administrative kind of organization of the land. And the Inca was sort of a benevolent dictator. You will pay us taxes. You will do what we say. You will submit your religious system that will allow you to continue, but you'll submit it to ours, and our religious system will be over yours. The whole thing is going to work that way. Uh, but listen, if anybody attacks you, just give us the word. We're going to come and take care of you. If your crops go bad, if there's a famine, something happens, a drought, we got plenty of food, we will take it. And they did. People loved the Inca, and the Inca took care of his people, and they paid him taxes, and he had it all working that way. Then the Spaniards wiped out the Inca and the Spaniards sort of continued that process where the Spaniard was the big boss man, the big owner of everything, and they worked for him. All of life came from the hacienda owner. And there's even still, to this day, an annual ritual where they will symbolically give a chicken to the person that lives in the old traditional hacienda even though they don't belong to him anymore legally to symbolize all that we have from life comes from you and your land. They still do that. That he was sort of the ruler of all those things. In this country, in these countries, they don't have social security like we have. They don't have welfare. They don't have unemployment insurance. When you hire somebody, or when you get into a relationship with somebody like that, it's like taking on a family member, and you take care of them for life, and they take care of you for life. They, you never have to ask twice them to do anything. All you have to do is kind of give an indication it needs to be done. They're going to be on it. They will take care of it. And in return, their child needs to get into a particular school or if they need money to put in their crop or if they uh, were unfairly accused of something and they have a minor infraction with the law, they know that you have relationships with certain high-placed people, you'll take care of them just as they're going to take care of you. And you have that relationship from now on. In these countries, for instance, I can tell you for real, for real, in Ecuador, when I was pastor there, we had a school... um, K through 12 was about 500 kids out in the valley. The guy that's the pastor there now was just in Peru with me a few weeks ago. We were talking about the fact, talking about the guy that he used to be the headmaster. He was a little slippery. Wasn't the best guy to have as a headmaster of a Christian school. But it's kind of hard to get rid of somebody in that kind of because you can't just fire somebody. You have to take their case to a judge. The judge hears it all, and then he will tell you whether or not you can fire them and how much you have to settle with them to do so. So here's this slippery guy. The church took this guy to court. Now, this is in a land where the minimum wage, what everybody tends to get if you're a teacher or, or if you're a policeman, something like that, you get $216 a month. Okay, That's the wage. The judge ruled that for them to fire him, they had to give him 
and $500 a month for the rest of his life. And he's not a high-level paid kind of person. So any level of employee you have, that's the way that it works. So what happens is people don't have employee-employer relationships out in the compo, out in the countryside. They have patron-client relationships. And these have existed since time immemorial. And they still see them that way. So people who will ingratiate themselves to you, yes, they may ask you for money. And there are culturally appropriate ways to say, no, I don't have it. Uh, but it's a dance, okay? And if they're dancing all the right steps, and when it's your turn to dance your step, you don't participate, oh, they're embarrassed. And that's what had happened to this guy. He was ashamed. He was embarrassed. He thought, well, how did I, what did I do wrong? It's like getting the mutually irresistibles for somebody, you think. You're dating them for a while. You finally go by the ring, and you get on your one knee one night, and you say, will you marry me? And she says, What? We don't have that kind of relationship. I thought we were just friends. What's that about? Um, you never want to hear that, right? So he disappears with his tail between his legs. He's very embarrassed. And that's kind of what's happened in this relationship. He did all the right things, and we didn't even know that relationship existed. So a lot of my students, when they hear about this, we talk about the patron-client complex. And this is not just true in the Andes. It's true throughout South America. It's true in uh, Africa. It's true in many places in Asia. This is a reality. The way cultures, they look at someone, they consider a big, powerful person, and they consider themselves not, and they tie, They want to relate to that person somehow. They may ask you to be the godparent for their child. It's not always about money. It's about other things as well. For instance, we have a number of godchildren, but the only relationship we have with them is that we agree to pray for those kids and be spiritual guides for them if they ever need counsel and that kind of thing. So we serve as godparents for that. It's, it's kind of like that. But when they're doing everything they know that's the right thing to do and you don't respond, then they get embarrassed. And they realize, okay, something's going wrong here, something's bad. There are culturally inappropriate ways for them to do that, and it's perfectly fine for you to say, nope. I mean, I pulled up in a community where we worked on a regular basis one time. I got out of the truck, and this young guy walked up to me and said, hey, uh, can you loan me $800? I said, I don't have $800. He said, okay. He never said anything else about it. I mean, he was just fishing. Why not? He may give it to me. Um, and the last time I was in Peru, we had gone out to the farthest village that's in our area. We're up, in, up by Cusco. Uh, the farthest village... I don't remember the name of it right now. But I got out of the truck, and by then we, our team, little team that was with us in the truck was hungry, and we didn't have anything to eat. We thought there'd be like a little cafe or something there. There was nothing. So I decided, well, I'll walk around and look for a bread store. So I walked up on this little kind of arch bridge that went over this little river, and I was trying to look around the community to see if I saw some place where I could buy the team some bread or something to eat. And this lady saw me. She made a beeline to me, and she walked up to me, and she said, Would you be my patron? I said, no. I said, I don't live here. I'm just here for the day. Oh, come on. Think about it. Don't you want to be my... Pa-? And I said, no. Because that wouldn't have been the appropriate way even if I lived there. If she saw the moving truck bringing my stuff in the house. You know, they, it's kind of a dance where they little by little begin to ingratiate themselves. And if you accept what they do for you, thank you so much. Oh, wonderful. See you at church Sunday. Then they know, okay, this is going well. And then one day when they do make a request, it's not just because they want to take advantage of you. There are people like that out there. Believe it or don't, it's a fallen world. So there are people who will. They do see you as very wealthy. There are some people who just want to take from you. I mean, there are people who will steal your socks without ever taking your shoes off. They just, they're good at it. But 
There's also this cultural complex called patron-client we have to be very aware of because it exists. Um, come on, you can do this. There it is. These are just some quick do's and don'ts. You probably heard these a million times, so I can rapidly go through these. But use um, hand sanitizer with discretion. Okay. Use um, money with discretion. Don't flash around lots of money. And whatever you do, don't say, how much is that in American money? Because um, they're Americans too, right? They just are South Americans. Um, and whatever, don't say, how much is this in real money? Okay, that's even worse. But, um, and if, you know, if you're in somebody's home and they say, would everybody like a piece of bread? And you think, okay, and then out comes the missionary perfume, you know, the hand sanitizer, and everybody's putting it on like it's a, you know, Lord's Supper kind of thing. Um, I mean, how would you feel, right? You've got some people in your home and you say, well, would you guys care for whatever? And they all come out and everybody starts squirting each other's hands and we're doing all this. You know, uh, we, there's no plague here. We don't have the plague. Uh, be careful with food and water. I always tell teams, be, be very careful with that. If you can't peel it, don't eat it. When you see fruit out on the street, you might think, yeah, well, it's, I'm not eating the peeling because we, we cut it up. Yeah, but the knife push, pushes all the yuck down into the meat of the fruit. Okay? So leave it alone. Don't do that. If water is not safe in a restaurant, and you can ask your team leader, you can ask the missionary, if it's not safe, neither is the ice. Okay, so, um, and I don't know what it is. We, we all get this bone in our head for like a, a Coca-Cola. If it's not ice cold, it's hot. Um, they call it, in Ecuador, they call it al clima. Um, in Peru, they call it a tiempo. But it's just room temperature, okay? And it rarely kills anybody. Just drink a room temperature Coke. Um, don't use the ice. So if the water, if you're not sure about the water, don't. Don't brush your teeth with it. Don't take your medicine with it. Don't even have the water running while you're brushing your teeth because you will automatically stick it under there and then you ride the porcelain bus the rest of the week and that's not fun. Um, don't open your mouth in the shower. You say, well, I'm not going to swallow. Um, I know. Um, don't eat off the street. I mean, from the vendors. You'll be very hungry. Um, it will smell very good. And if they're... Um, Cooking something like with the oil, they, I mean, they change that oil regularly every like two or three years, whether it really needs it or not. And uh, the water, I mean, you don't even have, you don't even need a microscope. Look at the water. I mean, there are things swimming in it. You don't want to. They'll rinse the glass out out every time somebody drinks something, right? If you watch them, stand back and watch those guys. Somebody, you know, walks up and drinks out of it, and they stick it in the water like that, and then you walk up your next. Um, don't do that. Be just be smart because you're there for a week or two. Um, be wise about that kind of thing. Um, but, even having said that, when you go into their home, you are an honored guest. And they will give you the best that they have. And it's one of the things that's true about these kinds of cultures is for them, calories equals life. It is, it, they cannot get it inside their head that people don't eat something because they don't like it. Now, we're used to that, right? I mean, we, our kids won't eat stuff they don't... They may like the taste, they just don't like the texture. And so we won't make them that because we know they don't like it. Or if we go to somebody's house, we'll make excuses for them because they don't like that. There, uh, they may be taking away from their family in order to give to you um, the food that they are providing. Jesus said, though, when He sent out the 70 or 72, depending on how your Bible translates that in uh, Luke 10.8, Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. 
I, you know, I don't, really don't know how much plainer he could have made that, but he said, eat what they set before you. Because you, you, they are giving you the best they have. Remember I said my son was kind of a picky eater. He only ate peanut butter and jelly. It had to be grape jelly. It had to be creamy peanut butter. But when we go to somebody's home and they would would be sitting around talking and they'd reach out and pick up one of their giddy pigs and they'd be petting it and then they push it on the nose and kill it, you know, and then they they dip it in boiling water and they're just talking to you, plucking all the fur off of it and they gut it with a knife. I mean, it's like somebody petting their cat and all of a sudden they they, and they throw it on the grill for a few minutes and then they throw it on the plate and it's laying there looking at you. And my kids are like, you know, um, what do you do? That is not a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But they would. They would give it the old college try. And in fact, Christopher did, did what I mean. Molly should eat it as long as I pulled that off the bone and gave it to her. It never bothered her. She thought everybody ate it. She grew up there. But Christopher, that was, um, that was a stretch. But he did it, you know, because it's important. I took a team from school, from Southern, to Akitra Community a couple years ago. And we went to the community where we used to work. And they were going to have a guinea pig meal for them all. Because they do have some teams coming to that area from time to time. And I had prepped my team. They sat down there and ate it. And then the brothers that we had worked with years before, kind of, I was standing behind my team uh, when they were finishing up. And they walked up to me and they said, this is unbelievable. I said, they ate it. And I said, yeah. I said, they're, they're missionaries. You know, just kind of joking with them and carrying on. They said, but nobody ever eats it. They always just kind of pick at it. You know, and they, you could tell they were very impressed. The next year, I went back to Tombo with a team to work in a, a Quechua community. And the team that we were there teaching, the pastors during the week, when the pastors would go down in this little room to eat. And our team, three or four guys that were there teaching, we would go down into that little room and we would eat just whatever they were eating. Whatever they had fixed for everybody for lunch, we ate it too. And one of them came up to me and he had been the assistant of the IMB missionary who had left like 15 years prior. There had been nobody working there since then. And people had come in from time to time, but basically to surgical strike mission kind of thing. You know, where they come in and do missions to you for the afternoon and then they squirt the hand sanitizer on and drive away. But he looked at me and he said, nobody has eaten a meal, no white person has eaten a meal with us in 15 years. And, um, you know, it was, it was, his eyes were misty, you know, and this was powerful to him. So something as difficult as swallowing a grub worm and you're probably not going to the jungle. If you are, get ready to eat grub worms. But are drinking chewed up spit because they, they chew up yucca and they spit it in a pot and it ferments and they hand you a bowl of it, you drink it. Um, and it tastes and smells just like it sounds. It's nasty. Uh, but it's a, test of, it's a test of fellowship, right? And you give it the, you just try the best you can and we have a missionary prayer. We pray, Lord, I'll put it down if you keep it down. And, um, <laughs> Where he leads me, I will follow, and what he feeds me, I will swallow. You could do anything. I mean, it's, you're just there a week. And uh, like I said before, few people die from that. There is medicine you can take. Um, Paul said, picking up on what Jesus was talking about, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. Why? That they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ, he said. And that's our goal. That's what we want to do. Um, I've got five minutes. Let me see what I can do with it. 
Oh, I got to take. Well, we're gonna eat, right? Are we gonna eat after this? Yeah. You can talk to me. I won't eat. You can talk to me while we eat. We'll do that. Oh. Can we do that? You have to eat. That'd be an offense. <laughs> okay. Um, don't drink the water. Don't drink the water. Yeah, if you can't drink the water in Somerset, we're in trouble. Okay. Ra- uh, quickly. Rapidamente. How was that? Rapidly. Enlist a prayer partner who's not going with you. Get them to pray. Keep a journal. Start now. If you're anticipating a trip in a month or two or three, you're scared, you're a little bit worried about the stuff that I just got through saying, something else. Maybe you've never flown before. Maybe you haven't flown. I took a guy last year had not flown since the 1940s. I told him some things had changed. But, you know, he, he was nervous, right? So, but keep a journal. Everything you're worried about, write that down. And then when you get back, write down, you know, you can look back and see how God answered every single one of those. I'm worried I won't be able to communicate. I won't be able to be of any use, whatever. Write that down. And if you get your prayer partner too, it's amazing when you get back and you compare notes where the, you know, the person said, you know, one Saturday I woke up at two o'clock in the morning and I prayed for you guys. You're on my heart. I just, I just prayed for y'all for about 15 minutes. And you look in your journal and say, that's when we were broken down on the side of the road. You know, and it's amazing how you can watch how God... And I'm probably the least mystical person you'll ever meet that I have seen that kind of thing happen over and over. Be careful and respectful about taking pictures. Sometimes in Peru and some of the touristy areas, they're going to want to tip. If you take their picture, give it to them. Okay? Um, if you promise... Listen, I'll send you a picture of all the kids in the community... Don't don't tell them that unless you know, unless you are going to do it and you know how that's going to happen. You have an email address. You're going to send a digital picture or something, um, because teams that will come behind you will be painted with a brush of people you can't trust because the last people didn't. Don't give out gifts to people or even your leftover Nikes or your old iPod because you have a better one at home anyway or whatever. This guy was really a good helper to me this week. I'm going to give him this out of the other without checking with your team leader or your missionary because we can create all kinds of issues that we don't mean to. Another person on the team that worked just as hard or harder is going to say, where, where was my iPod? I didn't get one. How, how come I didn't get any new tennis shoes? Or worse, sometimes we see these little street kids. We feel sorry for them running around in rags all week. One team in uh, Brazil bought a kid full outfit of clothes. It only cost them like three bucks in a little store. But they bought him a shirt and pants and some shoes because he just had them rags all week. And the day they're packing up to leave, he wasn't around. Finally, they saw him out on the street corner down the street. And some of the girls ran down there to see what was going on. Why he didn't come up to say goodbye. And they saw that he had just been beaten unmercifully. And we were wearing his rags again. And the pastor said, I told you all not to do that. The older kids at night beat him and took his clothes away from him. You have to be careful how you think might help. If you give somebody, a little kid, you buy him a little carton of milk or yogurt or something, open it for him before you give it to him. Otherwise, he's going to go sell it or somebody's going to take it away from him. Stuff like that. Um, grab a business card when you leave the hostile. A word to the wise. Jot down on the back of it the cell number of somebody you know that has a cell phone in that country or something like that. But if you get lost, get separated from the team, all of a sudden you see them going away in the subway and you're stuck here and you don't even know what the stop is, you can always show that card to a policeman or a taxi driver or something and at least know where you're supposed to be. It won't help if you're in Lima and you say, I remember it was a big White House. Okay, That's not going to help. So, grab a business card on your way out. Don't leave alone. You may be Jason Bourne, you think. Uh, but, I mean, I have taken guys that were Marines. One guy was a Marine. And he decided he was just going to walk down to the corner and back just to kind of see what it was like out there. Except he zigged when he should have zagged somewhere. And he got turned around. 
And he didn't know how to get back. He didn't know the name of the hotel. He didn't know anything. We were supposed to be leaving within an hour. So I just got everybody out there and I assigned everybody a street. I said, you walk four blocks down that way and you turn around and you walk straight back to me and we're going to come back here and see if anybody saw anything. If not, we're going to pick a new route. We're going to do that again. And we found him in the middle of a park just sitting on a rock because he was so smart enough not to keep wandering when he realized he was lost. He just sat still till we found him. But um, bad things happen to good people. Respect and support your leader or your missionary. You may be smarter than they are. You may uh, be more godly. You may have a better plan. But that week is probably not the best time to do it. Um, when you get back, if it's just so heretical, whatever somebody's doing on the field, get with your pastor, explain to him, and there are better ways to handle it. But while we're there, let's you know, let's just go along, go with the flow, do what they are doing. Um, basically, we want to contextualize, which is putting the gospel in culturally relevant garments, theology done from within a system, and trying to lose our excess baggage so that the gospel is clearly seen while we're working there. That's pretty much what we're about. Um, a lot of other stuff I wish I could say. Maybe I can come back another time or y'all can come to me and we can do that. Maybe we can go on a trip together. But I'll be around while we're eating. If you have any questions, please feel free to ask me. As you can tell, I love to talk. So um, I am here to serve you. I just want you to be as effective as you can be down there. See the kingdom expanded and they desperately need you. And I'm thankful to know that your church is making this commitment and uh, continuing to make this commitment even when it's not easy. So I'm through, Todd. Do you want me to pray, finish, do anything? Can we pray for the food? Should I pray for the food? Yeah. All right. Oremos. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity to join you on mission in your world. We thank you that there is a great hope that you've given us in Christ that he has died to pay for our sins and in exchange He gives us His perfect righteousness so that we come into Your presence. We thank You, Lord, for the opportunity You give us to tell others this great good news. We pray for the the Quechua people throughout Peru, the indigenous people throughout the South American continent, for the Mestizos, for the few churches that are there. We pray for those pastors that You would teach them, that You would just illumine their minds. The same Spirit who inspired these words would illumine their minds to see the truth in them, to know how to apply them to their lives. I pray that you would bless this church abundantly, financially, so that they can go in droves and impact the young people to the older people. Teach, Lord, that this church would have a footprint expansion around the world, but there in Peru especially. People would be closer to you, the kingdom would be expanded, and glory would be brought to your name. Bless the food that we're about to receive. Prepare our hearts for being in your house tonight. Speak to us, Lord. Don't let any of us go home the way that we came. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The, uh, the chili's in the uh, little coffee area down there. I'm thinking Steph must have put it down there. Yeah. Yeah. So Steph's right there and she'll serve it out. So. Yeah. Thank you.